lives of Dave Herbert and Walter Orthman are the lives of two different work stories. The first man, Dave Herbert, he started out in 2012 to break a record, and he did, a Guinness World Record. He wanted to work 100 jobs in one year, and he did. In a year, he worked 100 different jobs. He was a butler. He was a street musician. He assembled furniture at Ikea and a host of other things, and he made the Guinness Book of World Records. And then Walter Orthman this year broke another record for the work that he performed, but his work was altogether different. He broke the record for having the longest tenure at a job in the history of the world. He became a salesman for a textile company in 1938 and at 100 years old. He's still working there some 38 years later, 84 years later. Get my math right. A tale of two different work lives. You've got one man worked 100 jobs committed to none and another man who worked one job for nearly a century. When you open your Bible to the book of Hebrews, the author of the book is trying to suggest to us that Jesus is excellent, that Jesus is special, that Jesus is different. And in the opening chapter, what he does is he says that Jesus has done more work flawlessly and exceptionally well than anybody else in the history of the world, far from being in over his head or having too many balls in the air to juggle. The writer of the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter one that Jesus can handle it and he does it amazingly so. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to Hebrews chapter one. This book is written to a group of Christians who were struggling with their faith in many ways. And one way to summarize this was just be to took their eyes off of Jesus. And for 13 chapters, the author of the book of Hebrews is trying to help them reorient their gaze and to look at Jesus. And he basically shouts for 13 chapters that Jesus is special. But especially in the first four verses, he says that Jesus is special because of the type of work that Jesus performs. And so what I want to do is just notice the four ways in which Jesus's work sets him apart as being special. And after we do that, Neil will come up and talk about the ways in which that work leads to the worth of Jesus, making him special. All Jesus's worth and why we should praise and acknowledge him as a result. He begins this book like you would a sermon. There's no greeting. He just launches right into it long ago and many times. And in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom is appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the radiance of the glory of God and the imprint of his nature, who upholds the very word of world by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having obtained a name more superior to the angels, because by inheritance, his name is more excellent than theirs. Would you notice the four works of Jesus that set him apart? Number one, his amazing speech. He starts out in verse one by saying long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. And as you make your way through the Old Testament, it becomes apparent that God had a staggering amount of ways to reveal himself to the people by the prophets. He spoke through a donkey in Numbers 22 and verse 28 to Solomon in a dream. First Kings chapter three and verse five. He spoke to Moses face to face like a man speaks with his friends. Deuteronomy 34, 10 and 11. He even used the Urim and the Thummim, these two jewels that will be on the garment of the high priest. Exodus 28 and verse 30. But the Hebrew writer introduces all of that to say this. God saved the best for last. Notice verse two. In these last days in the Christian dispensation, God speaks to us through his son. And what makes Jesus's work so amazing? So is that of his speech. The Hebrew writer says that God speaks. Jesus. He is God's last revelation to mankind. And when he speaks, we should listen. 
No man ever spoke like Jesus did. John seven and verse forty six. They were astonished at his doctrine because he taught like one having authority and not like the scribes. Matthew 7, 28 and 29. He said, the words that I speak to you, those words are spirit in their life. John 6 and verse 63, the Hebrew writer says Jesus is different. This means line Jesus up next to any prophet, angel or Old Testament spokesman. And there really is no comparison. He's in a class all by himself and his speech makes it so. When John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus saying, are you the one that should come or should we look for another? You know the response to that. There is no one else coming. No one else needs to come. There's nothing else that can be said or needs to be said because nobody's ever said it any better than Jesus did. His word silenced the sea, Mark 439. With the mere utterance of his word, he cast out a fever and cast out demons. Luke 439, Mark 9 and verse 25. He raised the dead by calling Lazarus forth in John 11:43, like we might wake one another up from a nap. Jesus's words make him special and unique. And he is still speaking today. When you read the rest of the New Testament, Jesus is still speaking. The words recorded apostles and the prophets aren't different words or additional words. They're Jesus's words given to those men by the spirit to communicate his words to us if we would simply listen. The first thing the Hebrew writer says that makes Jesus's work stand out is his amazing speech. I don't know when's the last time you've been on a plane, but right before you take off the flight attendants, they start talking and giving instructions. They're talking about cabin pressure and masks that may come down and putting your bags underneath your seat. And what you need to do as an individual on this flight, just in case of an emergency. And you know what most people are doing as they're doing that. Some people are sleeping, some people are talking, some people are putting in their headphones, listening to music, doing everything but listening to the attendants as they give instructions, which just might save those individuals lives in the case of an emergency. The Hebrew writer says Jesus speaks and the way we respond to his words, all the difference, because our eternal lives literally depends on it. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which was first spoken by the Lord? Hebrews two and verse three. He's the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Hebrews five and verse nine. Do not refuse the one who speaks from heaven. If they didn't escape, who refused those who spoke on earth? How will we escape if we reject the one who speaks from heaven? Hebrews twelve twenty five. Jesus's speech sets him apart and makes him amazing. Here's number two. His ability to create. You open your Bible to Genesis chapter one and the Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But appreciate here that in Hebrews chapter one, the Bible says through Jesus, God made the worlds. God made everything. Now, all the members of the Godhead, father, son and spirit are involved in creation. But the New Testament makes this plain that Jesus was the primary agent through which God created everything. John one and verse three says all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus creates the world and this makes him different. Going along with the Jesus is not just superior to everybody in the world because he's a better preacher or a better prophet than them. Jesus is superior because he created those very individuals and they owe their existence to him as a result. Jesus is the creator of the world, and that puts him on a level far above any prophet or any spokesman. Michelangelo said about the various statues that he sculpted, he would say, I didn't create anything. I just released this structure from his stone prison. 
And you could say the same thing about Rembrandt's paintings, about Einstein's equations or Langston Hughes poems. In the end, though, we might style certain people as being creative in the strictest sense of the word. The only person who is truly creative is God. The Latin phrase for this is ex nihilo. It means out of nothing. It is to say about God when he created the world, he didn't use anything that was already here. He spoke and it came to be the hosts were made by the utterance of his words. Psalm 33 and verse six. And the Hebrew writer says, Don't ever look away from Jesus or compare him to anybody else because he's the reason that everything else and everyone else exists. And so it should cause us to trust in his power. Yes, that's exactly who Jesus is. Colossians 1:16 says he made everything, things you see and things you can't see. Thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, things visible and invisible. It's all here because Jesus willed it to be. So what does that mean for you and me? It means this. That power is on our side. The same power that created winter and spring, summer and fall is on our side. He cares about our lives. He crafted and made each and every one of us. And he upholds the world by his power. Number three, what makes Jesus's work special? His sustaining power. The text says in verse three, he upholds the world by his very power. He didn't just create the world, but he sustains it. Up to this present moment, Jesus created the world and then he makes sure that things stay where they should be and that they're ultimately in control. Colossians one in verse 17, Paul says, Jesus is before all things and in him, all things hold together in him. All things consist. Things stand fast today. Psalm 33 and verse nine, because Jesus is still in control of the world. What makes Jesus special concerning his work? Jesus's speech. Nobody ever talked like him. Nobody ever spoke like him. Number two, he created the world. But number three, he holds the whole world together. This third point is Jesus's way of saying to you and me, I've got you from day to day. I didn't just create the world. I didn't just come to preach and to teach, but I sustain you every waking moment of your life. Psalm 55 and verse 22, the psalmist says, cast your burdens on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Be honest. Do you ever watch the news or look out at our world and say, have you ever said these words? This world is out of what? What do we say? This world is out of control. We might feel like that sometimes. Never let your feelings deceive you. The world can never be out of control because Jesus is totally in control. He told Pilate, you could have no power over me at all unless it was given to you from above. John 19 and verse 11. He names the star. Psalm 147 and verse four. A sparrow doesn't touch the surface without his notice. Matthew 10, 29, the very hairs of your head. Some have more than others, but they're all numbered. Matthew 10 and verse 30. He cares about each and every one of us. Isaiah said in Isaiah 46 and verse four, even to old age, I'm he. And to gray hair, I bear you. I create it. I bear. I sustain. I will carry you. He sustains our very lives. As long as we last, he will. He's not like the man stuck at a restaurant holding the door open for those 30 people waiting for a break in the line so that he can let the things go and go his own way. Jesus is saying, I'm upholding the world. I'm sustaining it. I'm waiting on you to take me seriously. But don't spurn his invitation. Second Peter three and verse nine says that Jesus is waiting so that more people can come to repentance. He sustains the world right now so that people can turn to him and be saved. And here's the fourth one. What makes Jesus's work special is his unmatched purification. If the last point is Jesus's way of saying, I've got you from day to day, I sustain you. This next point is Jesus's way of saying, I not only have you from day to day, I've got you forever. 
When he had made purification, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This idea of purification is not some outward cleansing from some physical ailment. It's the inward cleansing that we all need from sin. It's what the Hebrew writer talks about in his eternal redemption. Hebrews 9, 14 and the purification for sins that came through his blood. Hebrews 9 and verse 22. And it's not just in that initial moment when we're baptized, but this purification continues to take place as you and I walk in the light from day to day. First John one and verse seven. And as we confess our sins, first John one and verse nine, he cleanses us. This verse is dripping with rich priestly language from the Old Testament. You remember the high priest would go in one day each year to offer up sacrifice first for his sins and then for the people's sins. But there's one stark difference that we shouldn't read over in verse three. It says after Jesus did his work as our great high priest, what did he do next? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Read Genesis through Deuteronomy and in all of the priestly furniture of the tabernacle and the temple, there's not one chair in all of that furniture because their work was never done. They could never sit down and say, I'm finished, I'm done. But after Jesus does his work, the Bible says he sits down. There's no more sacrifices to offer. He did it once for all time. I regret to tell you, I've recently been fired from the Kemp's Association of Washington Clothes. And the reason why is because I was putting in far too many scoops of that Buff City soap, you know. I was throwing in three and four scoops. I'm happy to report that after counseling and intervention from Miss Dana and Brittany, I realize I got it now. Just one scoop will do. I don't know how many bulls, I don't know how many lambs were sacrificed before Jesus died. But the Hebrew writer says when he made purification, it made all the difference in the world. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He purifies us in ways we never could be otherwise. It's his death that ultimately atones us. And that makes his work amazing because he does for us what we can never do in view of his amazing work. What's our response to him and what is he worth? Neil, come and preach. I grew up a Braves fan and as they went from the 1990 to the 1991 season, the thing that was said about them was that they had gone from worst to first. And if you're a Braves fan, you can remember back that far. You might remember that slogan that was given to the team. But it was off of the back of an even more incredible story that was told in the 1960s before I was born. An expansion team known as the New York Mets came along. They had the famous Casey Stingle as their manager and they were arguably the worst team in modern baseball. A comedy of errors, a bad news bears except a true story. And just a few years later, the 1969 season, they played with a bunch of average ball players to such a, a level that when they won the 1969 World Series, they were known as the Amazing Mets. More truly, the Amazing Mets. That word amazing is a word that we commonly use and perhaps can overuse it. There was a television show that uh, c captured our attention, The Amazing Race. As couples would run around the world on various assignments trying to win to get to the very end and be crowned the champions of the amazing race. But we're using a word today, amazing, to describe one that is uniquely amazing. When we think about a word that is used in the New Testament only seven times, the word in the original language is dokami. It is a word that is or speaks of proven worth or the proof of someone. The word is used of faithful Christians everywhere. 
The word is used particularly of the Corinthian Christians. It's a word used of Paul. It's a word used of Timothy. But as we think about what we see in Hebrews chapter 1, and we are looking at the proven worth of Jesus, the Hebrews writer, I think, rightly begins with the work that Jesus did that shows how amazing that he is. But there's something we need to understand about how the Hebrews writer writes. He will introduce a concept, and someone has described it as dropping a pebble in the water, and that water causes ripples. And he will introduce new concepts, but he'll come back to those center concepts. And so as we think about what Hiram has so masterly shown us from the first four verses about the amazing work of Jesus, we don't leave that in our minds because he's going to come back to that even as he makes new points. And I think that's what we can say about verses 5 through 11. As the Hebrews writer showing Jesus to be amazing moves from his amazing work to his amazing worth. You know, it's a fact that people are thinking more about Jesus at this time of year than at any other time. And how foolish it would be for us to bury our heads in the sand or to run away from that fact when it gives us such a great opportunity to uphold the Savior of the world, the only truly amazing one that there is. You know, I often will say that when I uh, am thinking about my favorite song, that it's this song or that song. And I think right now my favorite song that we're singing here at Lehman Avenue is the song, Behold Our God. And as you think about that song, if you're familiar with that song, maybe you are thinking about the Father. And I think it's appropriate as you read through the words. But it seems to me that this song is singing about the, the, the greatness and the worth of Jesus and praise to him as much as it is the Father. If you'll look at the last verse, and it, and it says uh, about uh, who has felt the nails upon his hand, bearing all the guilt of sinful man, God eternal, humbled to the grave, Jesus, Savior, risen now to reign, behold our God. I think that's what the Hebrews writer is doing for us. He wants us to see how amazing Jesus is, and out of that, he wants a certain response from us. What I want us to do very briefly is to walk through six things about Jesus that makes him worthy, worthy of our adoration, worthy of our praise, worthy of our following him. That first of all, he is worthy because he is the Son of God. If you study the book of Hebrews, it doesn't take you very long to see that there is a contrast going on by the writer of Hebrews. He's contrasting Jesus with several other things, and the bottom line is Jesus is better. He's better than the prophets, chapter 1. He's better than the angels, chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's better than Moses, chapter 3. He is better than the Sabbath rest that is to come, chapter uh, 4 and chapter 5. He is better than the Old Testament priesthood, chapters 7 through 9. He is better than the Old Covenant, the Old Agreement, chapters 8 and 9. And he is better than the Old Testament sacrifices, chapters 8 and 9. But we're in that second contrast. You know, this time of year we often think about angels too and there's so much misinformation about that but the Hebrews writer lays down some important facts and they all center around the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and what that means. When you see the contrast here, the Hebrews writer tells us with regard to Jesus and the angels that they are not called the begotten of God, verse 5, but Jesus is. 
Also, the indication is that they are created beings, but he is not. Verse 5, the angels worship him. That's the position difference. Verse 6, and none of the angels are told, sit at my right hand, but the Son of God is. Verse 13. And so you have this ongoing contrast. When we think about the angels, they are sent to minister to those of us who are saved. Chapter 1 and verse 14. But he brings the great salvation because he is the Son. A fact that the writer of Hebrews shares four times in the book of Hebrews. The first thing that is said about the Son of God in this book is that he was God's final spokesman. But throughout the book of Hebrews, there are other things said about the Son that shows how worthy he is. He is, as the Son, he is over God's house, chapter 3 and verse 6. As son, he is God's final priest answer, the servant who takes care of our sins, chapter 4 and verse 14. As the son, he is the submissive and the perfect sacrifice and representative of God, chapter 5 and verse 8. And he is the priest who is forever. Now when we see this idea of the son, what the writer is doing, it seems to me, is two things. We'll come back to the first one at greater detail in just a moment. But to say he is the son is to speak of his nature. That he shares the nature of the father. The Hebrews writers tying them together. He is saying that you see the imprint of his nature as we saw a moment ago in verse 3. When you look at the son, Jesus says you are seeing the father. You want to know what he's like, who he is? Look at me, he says throughout the book of John. And so we see different designations about Jesus as son in the book of Hebrews. He is called his son. He is called the son. He is called son. And what the writer is saying is when you look at Jesus, you see deity. But it's more than just that. That makes it amazing. When you look at Jesus as the son, what you're seeing is a unique and special relationship that Jesus has with the father. That's distinct in all. Only he is the begotten of God, verse 6. And only he came into this world to become one of us so that we could share in that special relationship. We understand we don't have that. If Jesus does not become the son, he is not the son always. He becomes the son, verse 6. But he becomes a son so that he might bring many sons to glory, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. The special relationship that Jesus has as the Son allows you and me the opportunity to be the sons and the daughters of God, Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. He is worthy. He is amazing in his worth because he is God the Son. He is also amazing because he is a proper object of worship. Hebrews 1 and verse 6 says the angels worship him and we are made a little lower than the angels. As we look at the book of Matthew, a book that's written to the Jews to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, we have no less than six uh, occasions where people worship Jesus. This book is written to a people who knew the first and second commandment of the Decalogue of Moses very well, and they knew Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13, which Jesus quotes when the devil comes and tempts him, and he says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Matthew 4 and verse 10. When you see Jesus, you see one who is worthy of worship. 
It's a mind-boggling thing to me that there exists a doctrine that would prohibit and would discourage us from worshiping God the Son. Because it is a point of Hebrews chapter 1 to say, the angels worship him, we're lower than them. Is it right to sing to Jesus? Is it right to address him in prayer? If Jesus is God, he is worthy of worship. Hebrews 1 and verse 8 says, Jesus is God and therefore he is worthy of worship. The Bible indicates to us that every knee is going to bow to Jesus, Philippians 2 and verse 10, and because that is true, he is worthy of worship. If no less than the apostles in Acts chapter 1 and verse 24, and Stephen as he's dying in Acts chapter 7, verse 59 and 60, and Paul as he closes 1 Corinthians in chapter 16 and verse 22, and the 24 elders and others sing and pray to him, how can we find ourselves in any less of a position when we adore him and magnify him? Have you thought about that as you worship the Father today? It is equally legitimate for you to worship the Son because He is the Son of God. He is the proper object of worship. And number three, He is worthy because He is God. I want you to notice in Hebrews 1, there are two explicit statements when the Hebrews writer says, when you're looking at Jesus, you are looking at God. Hebrews 1 and verse 8, the Hebrews writer says, Of the Son, he says, you are, uh, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then bounce down to verse 10, and there's a quotation of Psalm 102 and verse 25. And if you'll go back to Psalm 102, you will notice that Lord in the Old Testament, throughout that psalm, there's different words for Lord in the Old Testament, but the word used in Psalm 102 is Jehovah, the personal name of God. And it is the Hebrews writer taking from that particular idea, that particular name of God, and he applies it to Jesus. And so when we see that this is the Lord who created the heavens and the earth, and why is that so significant? Because our Jewish friends deny the deity of Jesus. They say he's not God. Throughout the religious world, the world religions deny that Jesus is God. Our friends among the Muslims and the Hindus and others would say he's a prophet. He is a religious teacher, but no more than that. Did you know that there are even some religious groups that claim to be Christians that say that Jesus is either not God or that he's not on a par with God, that he is a created being? And practically speaking, we may have a hard time thinking of Jesus bearing the nature and the attributes of the Father. And yet as God, God is God bearing those essential traits. And maybe we have a hard time with that because our comprehension is limited. But it's important for us to see how amazing that Jesus is, to look and to see what is said about him, and to understand that before he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and he was laid in a feeding trough, that what Matthew 1.23 says is true, that a virgin shall conceive and shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And you'll look at the end of the chapter, and it says that there is no end to him. Verse 12, no beginning. He's from the beginning. As we saw in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, there's no end to him. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 90 in verse 2, Jesus is God, and therefore he is amazing. But not only is he amazing for those three reasons, he is amazing because he is king and the writer of Hebrews goes, goes to great length to show us that. He has a throne. Verse 8, 
And seated on a throne, he has a power. He has authority. He has a scepter, a wand of rulership and office. That in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 9 and Revelation 19 and verse 15 says, he rules with a rod of iron. Why? Because he's king. As a king, he has a kingdom. Verse 8. And as a king, he is seated on the right hand of God. Verse 13. This shows his authority. This shows his favor, his position. So when we see Jesus, we understand he's a king, but he's a king of a different kind of a kingdom. Hey, you know, the politics seems to be going on all the time. There's a runoff election in Georgia on December 6th, and that's just to tide people over who are addicted until the next political thing comes along. And we get so embroiled in that, we get so concerned about that. But we have a king over a kingdom whose kingdom shall never be shaken, Daniel 2 and verse 44, and that's the king, that's the ruler that we must be the most concerned about. As we think about his reign, it never comes to an end. Jesus is standing before Pilate and he's thinking about the Jews who have rejected him because they wanted an earthly king. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this realm. He wants to rule and reign in our hearts. That doesn't mean that he's hoping or wishing or wanting to be a king. He is now king of kings and lord of lords. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16 He seeks to reign and rule over us and something is going to rule our lives. Jesus simply says, I make the most sense as king. But then uh, we notice that next he is Messiah. In verse 9, he is anointed with oil, with the oil of gladness over his fellows. And if we had the time, we'd look at Psalm 2 and Isaiah 61, which the Hebrews writer quotes, and we would show how those are messianic chapters. And what the Hebrews writer is saying is that he is so amazing because of his amazing grace. He came to fulfill what was needed, which Hiram talked about in that last point, in his work. But it also points to his worth because he is the Messiah. Man of sorrows, what a name, for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior. But then sixth, we see that he is amazing because he is creator. As we had seen, we see that his amazing power is seen in that he is the one who created as Lord the heavens and the earth at the beginning, verse 10. And that being the case, he is in control of all of his creation and it makes him amazing. He's going to roll up the heavens and earth like a robe when he's done with them. Revelation tells us, and so does Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 12. He is in control of it all. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He's amazing. Fernando Waldo DeMara Jr., successfully impersonated several different jobs. He impersonated a a ship's physician on a a naval ship. He also pulled off, in addition to being a naval surgeon, the, uh, the job of being a civil engineer. He would go on to impersonate being a doctor and a lawyer, two different types of monks, an editor, a teacher, as well as a, quite a few other jobs. It was said that he had an extraordinarily high IQ and he had a photographic memory. And so he was able to slip into all of these different jobs and he was able to do them. But as we think about him, it began to fall apart for him. 
For one thing, there was the fame that he achieved. People knew that face you see in front of you after time, and it became hard for him to try to pretend to be someone else. But in one of the people that he tried to pretend to be, he gained a lot of, different, a lot of weight, and, and thus it, it began to cause his health to fail. And ultimately, his life as an impersonator came to an end. Despite that, they've written books, they have made movies, and they have written songs about Fernando Waldo DeMara Jr. And he was a fake. But when we look at how the Hebrews writer lays out Jesus for us, he fulfills all of these roles. He's legitimate, he's qualified, and because he does, he has done for us what gives, uh, provides for us what only he can to give us what we all need. And so we can sing, he is my everything. He is my all. He's the real deal. He is truly Amazing. Ben Johnson once said this of William Shakespeare. He said, he is not of an age. He is of all time. And isn't that what truly describes Jesus as you look at Hebrews and elsewhere in Scripture? He is of all time because as God, he's timeless. John chapter 1 and verse 1. He is of all time because his authority and his relevance is for all people in all places at all times. He'd say, um, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. Matthew 24 and verse 35. And he is not of an age but of all time because the sacrifice they needed when the Hebrews writer wrote is the sacrifice that you and I need today. He is the covering for not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2 in verse 2, you know, when you think about it, there have been this, the same stories been written a lot of different ways throughout time, sometimes through literary classics and sometimes in ways that are more folksy and more relatable in our time. Two of the ones that kind of fall in that latter category are the stories that are told of a little girl in New York that we know as Little Orphan Annie. And another story that's told that is, harkens back to the medieval times of Arabia with Aladdin. And in both of those situations, you have individuals who are indigent. They're poor. They have no standing, no position. They are completely thought to be worthless. But through one means or another, they are given value and worth. They become somebody, not because of who they are, but because of what happens to them. Do you realize that that's what the Hebrews writer is saying is possible for us? That we're worthless I don't know anybody who is become, going to become a child of God who cannot first see that apart from Jesus, we have no value. We're nothing. But because Jesus is so amazing, we have the ability to partake of his worth and his value, and we become someone because of what he is and what he has done. Look at his work. Look at his worth. And you say that he is all, Ephesians 1, 23, and in all, Colossians 3 and verse 11, and he is for me and wants me to follow him. This morning as we think about Jesus and as we continue to look at him throughout this month, look at his work. He died for you. He lives so that you can follow him and live with him and his father for eternity. He's worthy. He's qualified. He has proven that. And all the work that he does. In response to that, surely, if we recognize our worth apart from him, we will want what only he can provide for us by responding in obedient faith, repenting of sins and being baptized to have those sins washed away, 
or as children of God who need to come back to him, seeing the worthy one is the willing one who wants to restore us to favor. If this is your invitation song, we urge you to come right now as we stand and sing.